The following was recorded live at the Charnel House in Chicago, Illinois on October 10th, 2015. The Charnel House is a former funeral home that's been converted into a theater. That's something you need to know just for the first joke. Hope you enjoy the show, folks. Hello, everybody! Welcome, welcome, welcome to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, live in Chicago! I've got a couple of messages for you guys. The toilets are here. The bar is there. Thank you to our wonderful repeat sponsors, Warpo, back there. Please turn off your audio elements of your phones and whatnot. But you can take photos, no flash photography, please. We've got a great lineup for you today. We've got a wonderful local comedian, Dave Stinton, coming up first. Then, yes. Then we've got the live recording of the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast with the gorgeous Chris Lackey and his sidekick, Chad Pfeiffer. (laughs) Something like that. And then we've got a break, some drinking, and then there's a quiz to come back for. And then hang out at the end with all of us. So for now, I'd like to hand you over to the wonderful Dave Stinton. How's everyone doing? Welcome to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast Live Show. I say H, you say P. Lovecraft. H. H. Nice. Little housekeeping up front, uh, just a quick note. If anyone is here for the Richardson family wake and viewing, that's been bumped to tomorrow afternoon. Uh, Very sorry for any confusion, but stick around. I think this will be fun for you as well. Uh, And we apologize for your your loss. Uh, So we're all fans of the macabre here, right? Let me share with you something I find infuriating about Halloween. You can't just dress up as Raquel Welch. You have to be sexy Raquel Welch. But I do do love Halloween. I especially loved it when I was a little kid. I loved dressing up. The scarier the costume, the better. Like in third grade, I went as the yawning gap between US standardized test scores and those of other Western nations. I think the, uh, the costume might have been a little too realistic for some of the younger kids in the neighborhood because they reacted with some terrified punching. Just like 45 minutes I was being pummeled by these poor scared kids. And I kept telling them, guys, this isn't doing anything. You know, only study and hard work is gonna turn this around. You can't just throw eggs at a problem and hope it goes away. Uh, But of course, what I like even more than the dressing up is the candy. Do you guys like candy? Let me finish. Do you like candy so much that you give yourself heart palpitations from overconsumption of high fructose corn syrup? What's that? Sometimes? I think that's what I'm doing to myself. Let me know if this is what happens. Like every once in a while, I get these heart palpitations and my heart will beat faster for a couple of seconds and then it'll go back to normal. And it infuses my body with this artificial sense of panic. It's like the feeling you get when you think you've misplaced your wallet. But over and over again, all day, for no reason. 
and I started to wonder if I get these things because I eat so much candy. So I did a little experiment. I stopped eating candy for a week. During that week, the heart palpitations went away. And at the end of the week, I ate a candy bar and the heart palpitations immediately started up again. <laughs> so the jury is still out. <laughs> but speaking of candy, one of my favorite things to do, and let me know if you guys like this, uh, I like to go to the Walgreens and just look at the candy selections for new updates on existing candy. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's a candy you've known for ages, but there's usually the word oops on the packaging somewhere. <laughs> like there's been some wacky mishap down at the plant and now all the Snickers are inside out. Uh, <laughs> limited edition. The people responsible have been fired. Pick it up now. And so uh, in that spirit, I found this at a Walgreens over the summer, red, white, and blue Twizzlers. <laughs> Very patriotic in honor of the 4th of July. Color scheme, check. Fireworks design on the packaging, check. King size, little ironic. <laughs> if they really wanted to make these American, they would force all the red Twizzlers to the less desirable sections of the Walgreens. <laughs> That's right, my candy material is edgy and confrontational. They stopped making them two years ago, so I've been carrying around a packet of Twizzlers for two years, just because I enjoy telling that joke so much. Where are my ladies at? There you are, good to see you. Thank you for coming. I dated a girl in college who had a real problem with the word lady. She didn't like the word, she felt like there was a lot of baggage kind of bound up in that word for what women are supposed to act like. Like, oh, that's not very ladylike or you should dress more like a lady, that sort of thing. And she especially hated it when public restrooms were labeled men and ladies. And I don't know how many of you have been to the bathrooms back here. They are labeled men and ladies. And that drove her crazy, she hated that. And I get that, that offends me too, as a, as a copy editor. <laughs> because it's inconsistent. You have these two perfectly legitimate pairs of words. You have men and women, you have ladies and gentlemen, but at some point, someone made a conscious decision to cherry pick this word from this pair and that word from that pair. The thinking must have been, oh yeah, that, that bathroom, that's for men. That's a men's room. But this bathroom, this bathroom's for ladies. <laughs> We're trying to attract a more sophisticated clientele to this bathroom. First of all, no toilets. What would a lady do with a toilet? That literally makes no sense. Every stall will have a fainting couch. Over by the sinks, a selection of parasols. In the corner, a station where you can get your tiny dog groomed. Um, of course, some men's restrooms are labeled gentlemen. Have you ever been in a gentleman's restroom? Anyone? They're nice. You can get your fox hunting horn polished. You can get that in the men's room too, but in the men's room, that's a euphemism. As is getting your tiny dog groomed. Uh, I do not have a dog myself because 
They make you live longer. <laughs> but if I did have a dog, I know what I would name him. I would name my dog Musket. Isn't that a cute name? A little scruffy dog named Musket. The best part about it is I could tell your political leanings by how you reacted to my dog's name. If you're a right winger, I'd say, this is my dog Musket, and you'd say, oh, little Second Amendment dog, little well-armed citizenry dog, who's gonna stand up to government overreach? Who's gonna stand up to government overreach? And if you're a left winger, I'll say, this is my dog Musket, and you'll say, oh, not my favorite wine grape. <laughs> I do like wine. You, you wine drinkers here tonight? I've really gotten into wine. Inviting me to a wine tasting is like inviting an alcoholic to a wine tasting. <laughs> so I'm gonna get out of here on this. This is an actual authentic artifact. My wife's sister's friend found this at an estate sale. And uh, this is a, a group of HP Lovecraft fans, so I can hear your boners from here. <laughs> A mysterious ancient tome unearthed at an estate sale. What eldritch incantations lie within here? Uh, but no. Full disclosure, it's a joke book. Uh, just in the interest of uh, maintaining your expectations. And um, it is entitled, We Don't Want to Hurt Each Other, Do We? 500 one-liners, insults, and jokes by Bob Thomas. And I think he means to put copyright 1991 on here, but he doesn't use a copyright symbol. He uses a lowercase c with a period after it, which I believe means circa 1991. $10 is the asking price for this. In 1991? It's like $1,000 today. And it's just what it's advertised as. It's 500 jokes, and they're alphabetical by topic. <laughs> and the only thing I can think is that maybe if you're writing a speech or something and you want to pepper it with some humor, you might look for your topic in here. I'm, I'm going to read you a couple from here. Let me see. Uh, all right. This is uh, under the category of religion. A survey shows that four out of five Americans can't tell the difference between TV evangelists and the home shopping network. Cutting out stuff. Uh, okay, this one is under the category of death. I get so upset when I read the obituaries. If you go by the photos, they all look so healthy. So... Now that you've got a taste for the guy's style, <laughs> I am going to read to you every joke under the AIDS category. <laughs> Circa 1991, guys. Back when it was acceptable to make AIDS jokes and occasionally use one in a toast. All right, AIDS joke number one. This whole AIDS thing has got everybody scared. My grandmother's knitting club refuses to share needles. <laughs> I, 
I don't know how he pulled it off, but that's actually kind of a sweet little AIDS joke. And it is the only AIDS joke Bob Thomas graced us with, so give it up for Bob Thomas. Give it up for me, I've been Dave Stanton. Thank you for having me. And uh, to keep the night going, I'm gonna turn it over to Heather Clinky. So give it up for Heather. Hello, everybody. This is the audience warm-up part of the show. So take a moment, collect yourselves. Now, what I'm gonna do is, this is a practice for the, you know, the big scream, the opening of the show. So just to warm me up first, I'm gonna say hppodcraft.com and you're gonna do a zombie sound. <laughs> Y'all ready? hppodcraft.com. <laughs> that was pretty good, everyone's got really good lung capacity. Okay, this time when I say it, I want everybody to boo and hiss like you just hate stuff. <laughs> Real deep in your guts. Okay, hppodcraft.com. That's pretty good, that's pretty good. Okay, now this is the real thing. So you just wanna scream. Don't hurt yourselves though. <laughs> Stage scream. Okay, <clears throat> hppodcraft.com. <laughs> and now I'm going to faint. <laughs> Are y'all ready? for HP Podcraft Live! You got it. I am what I profess to be, a writer of weird fiction. Since earliest childhood, I have been enthralled by the cryptic fascination of the unknown and the unguessable, the nameless fears, the grotesque dreams, the queer, half-intuitive fancies that haunt our minds have always exercised for me a potent and inexplicable delight. In literature, I have walked the midnight paths with Poe, or crept amidst the shadows with Mackin, combed the realms of horrific stars with Baudelaire, or steeped myself with Earth's inner madness amidst the tales of ancient lore. A meager talent for sketching and crayon work led me to attempt crude picturizations involving the outlandish denizens of my nighted thoughts. The same somber trend of intellect which drew me in my art interested me in obscure realms of musical composition. The symphonic strains of the planet suite and the like were my favorites. My inner life soon became a ghoulish feast of eldritch, tantalizing horrors. Those were the opening first few paragraphs from Robert Bloch's The Shambler from the Stars, a story that inspired H.P. Lovecraft to write his own story, and that's why we're talking about it here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, live from Chicago. Yes. You can, of course, find us at hppodcraft.com, but right now, physically, we are in our home state of Illinois, and uh, specifically, we are at the Charnel House in Logan Square, Chicago, a pretty spooky little venue. We're very pleased to be here. 
And I am very pleased to see all of you tonight. Most of you, I gotta shake your hands, creepy out a little bit already. Let me introduce myself. I am Chad Pfeiffer. I am Chris Lackey, and that lovely reading you just heard performed was done by the very talented, the very delightful Andrew Lehman. Hi. Now, this is our, this is our fourth live show. Uh, we did one in Leeds, two in Providence, and now in Chicago, and Lehman has been with us for every single Yep. show that we've done That's live. Right. So I'd like to think of him as the, as the third member of our triumvirate. He is our Porthos, our Larry Fine, <laughs> our Dusty Bottoms. <laughs> well, we all know that famous saying, when you've got an overwritten paragraph that needs some redeeming, don't be an asshole, hire Andrew Lean. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, aside from being a great reader, Andrew is also founder of the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, which has been knocking out some amazing stuff lately. I'm sure a lot of you have purchased some of that stuff. Andrew, why don't you tell us what you got going on over there right now? Uh, we just, uh, it has been a very busy year. We've done uh, two episodes of Dark Adventure Radio Theater already. We're working on the third right now. We've been keeping the title under wraps, but it's going to be called A Solstice Carol. And it is, uh, it's going to be an anthology uh, special episode that binds three of Lovecraft's shorter works with a uh, sort of Dickensian holiday framing narrative. I think you guys will find it a lot of fun. We also recently released a book this year, The Spirit of Revision, a collection of all the letters known between Lovecraft and Zelia Bishop. We were very excited to get our hands on some 36 letters that had never been found. They'd been sitting in somebody's garage in Iowa for the last 80 years. And uh, they fell into our hands, and we were very excited uh, to get a chance to bring them out in book form. And we're finally putting some history in the old H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I am also pleased to introduce a denizen of Chicago, a man that I find infinitely intelligent, knowledgeable, and charming, Kenneth Hyde. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on the show. Always a delight, especially delightful to be here <laughs> in the greatest city in the world. Yeah, sure. Now, Ken is a writer of short stories, but most, mostly known for your writing of role-playing games, specifically one of my favorite games, The Trail of Cthulhu. Yes, Trail of Cthulhu from Belgrain Press, a licensed adaptation of the greatest role-playing game of all, Call of Cthulhu, to the gumshoe system by Robin Laws, available wherever fine games are sold. Don't go to where only mediocre games are sold, you won't find them. We also want to thank our longtime friend, Illinois native Reber Clark over there for working the music tonight. If you've listened to the show, you're familiar with Reber's great stuff. Right now he's currently working on the score for Chicago filmmaker Robert Capoletto's upcoming project, Beneath, Between the Eyes, not Beneath the Eyes, that would be about a nose, I suppose. <laughs> this is Between the Eyes, which is based on a Wild Claw Theater production of The Revenants. The Revenants? Revenants. I say it, you know, however I want to. Uh, he's also currently scoring Brian Moore's film adaptation of The Shadow Over Innsmouth, and his movie, Derleth's Brain, just premiered at the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival in Portland, which was last weekend. Yep. Uh, that'll be streaming soon, and we'll announce it on the show. Thank you so much, Reber, for doing this. But also, I want to thank our sponsors, Warpo. Yes. We're so glad to have Warpo here, and they brought along Cthulhu. Hopefully some of you guys got some photos. We're really glad to have him here. He hasn't been around since Gen Con in August. Uh, he's a pretty sleepy little guy, so he doesn't get out very much. <laughs> 
It was pretty great to have him there. I hope you've seen some of the stuff back at the booth. Yeah, Warpro's Legends of Cthulhu retro action figures became instant collectible classics. You can get yours at bigbagtoys.com and thinkgeek.com, along with very limited edition 12-inch Cthulhu, glow-in-the-dark 12-inch Cthulhu, and collector's club kit. Also, we've got a few items in the back there. Yeah. And if you stick around for the whole show, we're going to be having a bit of a giveaway at the very end. Yeah. So Didn't we lock the doors? Oh, we will if you oh. try to leave. <laughs> uh, there, there are a lot of limited edition products here you can pick up at the booth. I've got four of the action figures myself. I wanted to be a proper nerd and keep them all in the box, but I couldn't stand it anymore. I finally broke them out, conducted a little cult ritual in my bathtub. <laughs> And, um, you know, they say that you only get a few peak experiences in your life, and I think that was one of them. By the way, I was wearing a 1920s bathing suit in that scenario. If anybody was imagining me naked, this is a family show. I thought something was arising, but I... No, no. Andrew! (laughs) You opened the door, man. (laughs) No. Uh, So... Folks, you can also go to Warpo.com and check out their blog, which features uh, such luminaries as Sandy Peterson, the creator of the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. You can find Warpo on social media, Facebook and Twitter. Last but certainly not least, before we get into the story, which we swear we're about to do, we want to thank our Kickstarter backers for making this all possible. And that is you, folks. Uh, We just had a great time in Providence in August. The story we did, it was an August Erleth story. Uh Uh, It was a particularly good story. It was a story about seven Edgar Allan Poe's roaming around Providence. It didn't make a lot of sense. But you guys are lucky because tonight we are covering some really great stuff. We're here at the beginning of Blocktober, which is October where we talk about Robert Block, in case you weren't able to figure that out. So we're proud and excited about covering not one, but two dose Robert Block stories for you tonight. The first one is called The Shambler from the Stars. Yes. This was published in Weird Tales in 1935. Many of you know the Lovecraft story, The Haunter of the Dark. That story actually was a response and a sequel to this story by Robert Block. That's right. So let's dig in. Let's do it. The story starts off with the narrator telling us that he's a weird fiction author. Uh, He has fanciful ideas, but he's actually kind of a boring guy. Right. And I I loved in that opening reading, he says he worked hard to illustrate the outlandish denizens of his knighted thoughts with crayons. (laughs) And he actually says, I got the crayons out and tried to do it, and it didn't work. Do you think he was using a Scooby-Doo coloring book when he did that? No, yeah? that would have helped. Uh, so he's not a manual labor kind of guy. He just, you know, sort of fell into writing. That's one of my favorite lines. It says, the depression complicated matters to an almost intolerable degree, and for a time I was close to utter economic disaster. It was then that I decided to write. <laughs> Which, in my estimation, is not the best money-making scheme. That is exactly you know, most how it people works, when they're That is exactly how it works. What's <laughs> up for you? Okay. Yes. Most people, when faced with economic disaster, get a job at McDonald's, or they rob a McDonald's, which is how the hamburglar keeps himself afloat. But anyway, maybe it just means at this point I was ready to try anything. That's why I decided to write. He buys an old typewriter, gives this writing thing a shot. Just like anyone, he wasn't very good at first. So he wrote and wrote and wrote until he got a little bit better. And uh, he actually finally sold one of his stories. Then he sold another and he got pretty good and was hoping to attain uh, more weird in his fiction. He wanted authenticity. He felt Mm -hmm. like he he couldn't capture the real, truly weird. And uh, this is actually a lot like the character from Frank Long's story, The uh, Space Eaters. He starts to pursue the true supernatural because he thinks that by finding the real supernatural that he will then tap into what is truly weird. The guys that he reminded me of was the, uh, the narrators of The Hound. (laughs) 
that have the same thing where they're surrounding themselves with cacodemoniacal violin music and whatnot. Right, yes, yeah, because... And, and nauseous smelling things. Exactly, and Actually, yes. they would have loved this yeah. place. Yeah. Right. <laughs> not because of the smell. I did not mean that at all. I, just mean, I meant but because it's... There's, an, like, there's an embalming table in the dressing room back there. Yeah. It's weird back there. I'm here to tell you. It, it was it, too heavy for us to get it out here, but we wanted to. Yeah. Well, you, you mean to put our microphones on, right? That's what I meant, Chris. Okay, yes. that's what I, was, I, I hope that's what you meant. Now, what's strange about this is that this character isn't supposed to be the Lovecraft character in the story. The narrator is. Right, it's not the Lovecraft stand-in. Yeah. I thought it was. Another Lovecraft stand-in is going to show yes. up eventually. So there's two Lovecraft stand-ins in one story. Which, that's a basic rule of thumb that most writers know, is one Lovecraft in a story. Yes. Never have two. If you have more than that, it makes it seem less real. So. Right. Which is kind of... <laughs> Pretty soon you got seven Edgar Allan Poe's Yeah, exactly! <laughs> right. Either do one or actually seven is okay. <laughs> Anywhere in between, a not prime so great. number. That's what it has to be, a prime yeah. number of Lovecrafts. <laughs> it's it's like in a, the textbooks. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a Fibonacci sequence. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Some of the things he says about what he wants to accomplish, this is our narrator uh, in his weird fiction, are pretty out there. He says, I yearned to know the terrors of the grave, the kiss of maggots on my tongue, the cold, yeah, the cold caress of a rotting shroud upon my body. I thirsted for the knowledge that lies in the pits of mummy to eyes and burned for wisdom known only to the worm. Then I could really write. What knowledge is in the pits of mummied eyes? I mean, is that like a fortune cookie situation? You dig in there and one of the bandages says, people are naturally attracted to you. <laughs> and that, that is not a fortune, by the way. But, yeah. It's not a fortune. No. But you might find it in a fortune cookie. Yeah, which is really annoying. We've got a whole other podcast on that we're yeah. going to do at some point. That's just telling you something about yourself. That's not a fortune. <laughs> so the narrator decides the only way he's going to find out about the truly weird is uh, finding some really nutty thinkers and dreamers. One of the guys that he wrote to is from New England, and he tells him about scary books, you know, like the Necronomicon and, and uh, just, scary, you know, scary books. And uh, this guy who grew up in Arkham heard stories in, of his youth about uh, secret groups and organizations and cults and things like that. So there's yeah. something to explore. So this is the other, this is the real Lovecraft stand-in. I wanted to point out that there's this tick that Lovecraft himself had, and I've been seeing it show up by all of these other guys that he influenced, Long, Smith, Durleth. It's the use of the word certain. And this story is only about seven pages long, but the word certain gets used seven times. Uh, as in, he quoted guardedly from the Necronomicon and spoke timidly of a certain Book of Iban, which I don't understand why he modifies it there. He just said the title of it. I mean, yeah. is it just that certain kind? I don't know. Uh, he reluctantly consented to furnish me with the names of certain persons. Yeah. And I think it's because, you know, certain means specific, but not explicitly named or stated. And that's why he used it so often, why so many mythos writers use it, because it's a lot like unnameable or unmentionable, where it's an adjective. You know, he's, later in the story, he says, peasants shun the forest by night, for they did not like certain noises that resounded to the moon. I mean, it doesn't describe the noises, but it lets you know that there's something ab about them that's awful enough that they're remarkable. They didn't mind some of the noises. Yes. It's just that certain just of the noises. Certain of them weren't so good. Like, you know what, another word that I've recently discovered when we were working on that bishop thing, another word that Lovecraft uses a lot is infinite. Mm -hmm. Infinite and infinitely is one of his favorite words to overuse. And I hadn't really thought of it, of course. Eldritch and Cyclopean get all the love, but right. <laughs> he, really, he really works out the word infinite. <laughs> He certainly does. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look for it in the story now. I, you should. I will. You'll find it. 
I, th- I think I said infinite at the beginning you, of the you, show. You, and I, I thought of that yeah. earlier because oh, right. you, you described someone earlier as infinite. Yeah. 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 So it's infinitely like, delightful. You described somebody earlier as infinite? A certain someone. A certain someone. You described yeah. as infinite. I also want to point out that uh, Clark Ashton Smith and August Derleth also get shout outs because when he's looking for the isolated thinkers and dreamers, yes. one ah. of them is the hermit in the Western Hills, which is Clark Ashton Smith. Yes. Right. And one of them is a savant in the Northern Wilds, and that's August Derleth. So. Uh, Ken, I knew we had you here for a reason. The whole club is here. Yes. So the narrator uh, decides he's going to start asking around to people who might have access to these scary books. But people start to get annoyed that he's asking because Mm. they've got, you know, scary books that have arcane secrets and bad things in them. He even receives a threatening phone call from somebody like, hey, back off. Don't be looking for these books. Leave us alone. (laughs) No, that's it's it's like I actually have an earlier draft of the story that has the content of the phone call in it. I put it in your notes there. If we could just, I'll be the call. Oh, okay. You read the caller, I'll be the narrator. (laughs) Ring, ring. Hello? Hey, are you the one who was asking about my books? Yeah, that was me. Well, cut it out, jerk. Click. (laughs) So. It was probably a good decision to cut that from the story. It's kind of like when there's a director's cut of a movie and they say, there's things in here that were too scary for audiences. That phone call. (laughs) Too scary. Uh, So he decides that the only way that he's going to find any of these scary books is by hitting the used bookstores. So he does this. Yeah, exactly. I guess. It doesn't specify how long he does this. I'm guessing a day or two, maybe. Uh, Takes him no time at all, actually. Yeah, you're right. He just really just finds, and he he comes across this book called A Divermis Mysterious, which means Mysteries of the Worm. The guy that runs the shop doesn't know what he has on his hand, so he gets it for a dollar. And this book is kind of Bloch's Necronomicon. It's his, right. He came up with it. This is the story where he introduces the book, and it, it got picked up and used. Lovecraft used it himself in Haunter of the Dark, The Diary of Alonzo Typer, and The Shadow Out of Time. Other authors shared this book. Uh, he had just called it Mysteries of the Worm, but Lovecraft, in their correspondence, Bloch and Lovecraft's correspondence, suggested that he use the Latin title because it just sounds a little creepier. Also, I'd like to point out that he finds the book in a shop on South Dearborn Street, so right here in Chicago. That's where he finds it. Oh. My goodness. I didn't realize that. Wait, wait, does Block live in Chicago? Block lived in Milwaukee. Milwaukee. Oh, Milwaukee. But he was born in Chicago. Which means that Block loved Chicago from a distance. (laughs) (laughs) He was full of jealousy and love. Hey, Milwaukee, how's it going? <laughs> There's a couple of Milwaukee folks out here. The book was written by Ludwig Prynne, and this guy was an alchemist, necromancer, mage, basket weaver, and hairstylist. What? I added those last two. Yeah. People in medieval times had to have a, uh, you know, they had to be more self-reliant. Because if you're being held prisoner by Saracens, you don't really have access to your regular hairdresser. No. Yeah. <laughs> you don't. <laughs> So it's as true today as it ever was. <laughs> this guy, Ludwig, was burnt at the stake during the height of the witchcraft trials, but he says that he was a survivor of the Ninth Crusade, so around the 1200s. And basically, he's telling people that he's been alive for hundreds of years. Yeah, he claimed that he was captive in Syria, and that's where he learned a lot of his occult secrets. He dealt with jinns and afrits, the secrets of the seers of Alexandria... I don't know. Are those real guys, Ken? Have you ever heard of those? Uh, it's not a, it's, there's not like a specific, you know, motorcycle club or whatever. Okay. But <laughs> Alexandria, of course, famously had the, the great library of right. ancient times, although the library had pretty much been burned down and replaced by the Library of Cairo by the time that Ludwig Prynne is 
theoretically being held prisoner, but maybe he has access to the the crypts where the last oh, rec, rec, yeah. uh, the last bits of it had been buried ahead of the Christian and then uh, Muslim armies stamping out evil. Right, so all that survived was like the core evil collection. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only part the fire didn't burn. Yes. Uh, and also, uh, Mr. Prin was Belgian. Yep, Belgian. I- important detail. I thought that was important. Yeah. Uh, in his old age, he moved uh, into a little pre-Roman tomb just outside of Brussels. It was cozy two-bedroom with plenty of parking. Supposedly, nice. he lived there with a bunch of familiars and spirits and things like that that he had conjured. Now, some inquisitors heard about him living out outside of Brussels and decided that he shouldn't be doing this spirit talking and all that business. So they captured him and imprisoned him. They went and searched his house, but they found nothing. There was no spirits or ghosts or anything like that. Or maybe they were invisible. I don't know. Just throwing that out there. They torture him for a long time. He doesn't tell him anything because he's tough. I guess like Rambo is what I was thinking. I pictured him with a beard before, but after this, I was thinking, you know, he had a red headband and stuff. <laughs> just where I went. It's just where I went with it. He had to wear that because he couldn't do any hairdressing while being tortured. Exactly. Exactly. Connections. Connections. Where are they making connections here? The <laughs> it was then, while he was in prison, that he wrote this book, and nobody's sure how he got a hold of the paper and the quills or how the book was taken out of the prison. So either he bribed some guards or maybe his spirit friends... Helped him get this book published. I don't know. But they did. And he was killed. The book was published. Some copies got out, but then they were suppressed. So there you go. Thanks for coming out, guys. (laughs) But this book book is written in Latin, and he doesn't speak Latin. So he got it from the second-hand store. It was kind of worthless to him. This is when he decides to contact this other Lovecraft stand-in who lives in Providence because that brother knows some Latin. Now, his buddy at first, Lovecraft II, is eager to translate it, but once he actually hears about him getting the book and about Ludwig Prynne, he's less into it, and he even tries to dissuade Lovecraft narrator prime. You shouldn't mess with it. It's horrible, evil stuff. But then he goes, man, you know, maybe I'll just crack it open and look at it. And he starts to kind of flick through the pages with like a literary sensuality. And then Lovecraft can't stop himself from looking at it. He goes, all right, all right, all right. And he takes it, and he sits down, and he starts translating the book. Yeah, and his enthusiasm just gets the better of him, so he starts running through everything. He starts reading it out loud, or translating it out loud, so that his buddy can understand it. That is such a bad move. It's a bad move. He's not seen the Evil Dead films. No. (laughs) Some of these things, i got to ask you guys about. It says there are things about Father Yig. I get that. I know that's like the snake guy from that other story. Right. Serpentor. And then he says, Dark Han. Do you... Darkon? He shot first. <laughs> yeah. End scene. <laughs> Fine. That's, we'll go with that one. And there's... Uh, the, the real answer won't be better than that. Yeah, there's no way. Is there a real answer? This is one of the also rands that Block sort of was trying out, like uh, this one in Serpent oh, Bearded okay. Beatus. So. Yeah, he also says uh, Serpent Bearded Beatus, which I think is the yeah. first kind of hipster... Mythos uh, creature we've encountered. I mean, serpent beards is pretty hipster. So, so, so Beatus gets picked up a little bit later by, I think, by Walter DeBille, and then later by Ramsey Campbell as part of the Severn Valley Mythos. Mm. I think Campbell has read this and thinks, oh, Beatus, that's a good name. That sounds good. It is a pretty good name. And, uh, but I think Han, poor Han, winds up with like Nug and Yeb and all the other <laughs> one-syllable ones where uh-huh. people are like, if you're not even going to bring a second syllable, we... <laughs> you get no love Don't unless bother. you got yeah. more than one syllable. It's true. So uh, Lovecraft finds this passage, 
which, well, Lovecraft II finds the passage, uh, which seems to be a spell that Prynne used to summon unseen servitors. And then he reads it aloud, which I'm going to do now. Tibi magnum me nominandum, signa stellarum nigrarum, et bufaniformis adoquae sigillum. The croaking ritual proceeded, then rose on wings of nighted hideous horror. The words seemed to writhe like flames in the air, burning into my brain. The thundering tones cast an echo into infinity. Beyond the farthermost star, they seemed to pass into primal and undimensioned gates to seek out a listener there and to summon him to earth. Was it all an illusion? I did not pause to ponder. So the room then gets very cold, but then the window blows open and they hear this evil bleeding sound coming off in the distance. And then the walls and the window from the house, they cave in, they start to give way as if an invisible thing, which it is an invisible thing, uh, busts in. I need to read it now, thanks. Spoil the whole thing. It busts in. Uh, Lovecraft uh, II freak, is freaking out. Ah, no, it is grabbing him and stuff. Just and like that. Just, ah. <laughs> and then he gets lifted off the ground and his back bends at an unnatural angle yeah, and backwards. cracks. And then his neck busts open and blood starts shooting out of his neck, but it doesn't touch the floor. It just is congealing congealing yeah. in, in the air well something is it's as if it's there's this sucking sound that comes right. through the room so when the blood's coming out something's in, imbibing it Lovecraft's body stops moving and begins to shrivel because the thing is pulling all of his blood out and why don't we do another reading at that point <laughs> a reddish glow filled the corner by the window a bloody glow Slowly but surely, the dim outlines of a presence came into view. The blood-filled outlines of that unseen shambler from the stars. It was red and dripping, an immensity of pulsing, moving jelly, a scarlet blob with myriad tentacular trunks that waved and waved. There were suckers on the tips of the appendages, and these were opening and closing with ghoulish lust. The thing was bloated and obscene, a headless, faceless, eyeless bulk with the ravenous maw and titanic talons of a starborn monster. The human blood on which it had fed revealed the hitherto invisible outlines of the feaster. It was not a sight for sane eyes to see. So just to get it all straight, he read some stuff out loud, and then a giant (laughs) invisible monster showed up, cracked him in half, and drank all the blood out of his body. Just to get it straight for you, that's what just happened. Yep, that's it. The thing is that uh, it didn't come. It doesn't come after the narrator. This invisible creature. It just goes out the window and flies away. And he's just left there. Lovecraft Prime is left there with dead, shriveled Lovecraft on the floor. <laughs> and he's just like, "Why? Well, how do I? What do I do now?" It is. A, it is a weird situation to find yourself. Yeah. In. But so, fortunately, he's equal to the task. Yeah. Yes. So he goes. Well, I guess. I can't really call the cops. I can't really phone people to let them know. So I'll just torch the place. (laughs) I love it. Well, because he doesn't... The thing is, when he came, nobody knew that he was coming to visit. He was unannounced, and uh, nobody actually saw him come. So he's thinking... Yeah, it seems like the solution... There's a line he says, After that, I went away, laughing, for I knew that the blaze would eradicate all trace of what remained. (laughs) I assume he's laughing because he's gone crazy by this point, but it struck me as he was just like, "Ah, What a funny misadventure. (laughs) 
I'll just let that explosion happen and walk away. So uh, the event left him troubled. <laughs> Does he say that, or is that your word? Troubled? Yeah. Uh, There's something about that un- invisible blood-drinking monster that troubles me. <laughs> but he can't sleep. Uh, I'm not going to address that. He can't sleep, and it's to the point that he's taking drugs to, yeah. to help him in the bad dreams that he's having. And he also has this sense that the thing will come back and suck his blood. That's why he's troubled. I have a curious suspicion that I shall again see that shambler from the start. I think it will return soon without being re-summoned, and I know that when it comes, it will seek me out and carry me down into the darkness that holds my friend. Sometimes I almost yearn for the advent of that day, for then I shall learn once and for all the mysteries of the worm. And that's the end of it. That's the end of the story. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, Lovecraft actually uh, wrote the Latin that was used for the spell. Lovecraft wrote that and sent that to to Black. There's a translation, right? Yes. Why don't you read it out loud? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we should have Andrew read it out loud. (laughs) I'm not reading it out loud. (laughs) All right. Uh, Ken, you want to read it out loud? I'll read it out loud. (laughs) Andrew read it in Latin, so it's coming after him anyway. All right. Okay, that's true. Uh, TB Magnum Inomiandum is uh, basically to the great not to be named, to the great nameless one. And that, it, by the way, is what Lovecraft calls Haster in yes. uh, Whisper in the Darkness, is the nameless one, which is why you get the bit about Haster and uh, his name over and over. So if you say Haster a bunch of times, then stuff comes and eats Ken, what, what was that name yeah. again, Ken? Yeah. Stop, Ken, yeah. stop it right now. Don't yeah. like what's happening. Stop it, Ken. I just have to say it next to <laughs> Andrew Lehman's name. So Andrew Haster Lehman. No, hey, cut, a, cut it out, dude. That's not cool. Uh, stellarum nigrarum, that would be in the sign of the black stars. Et bufaniformis sadique, that would be the toad formed or toad shaped. And sadique is the Latin version of sathagua, uh, Clark Ashton Smith's beloved bat toad monster. Uh, and sigillum, <laughs> so it's in the... Uh, <laughs> He's a cutie. The, the, the sign of the black stars and the seal of toad shaped sathagua. So this is all sort of the, the, inter, the introductory part. It's in yeah. the name of the, un- yeah. in, uh, the unnamed one, the great unnamed one and of the seal of the black stars, and of the sign of toad-shaped Sathagwa, yep. blah. And then the blah is the part where you then say, come on, eat me and break me in half and drink all my blood and blah, blah, okay. blah. Okay. <laughs> or maybe you don't say that and then it doesn't eat you. Yeah. But although the, uh, the thing does, just like it did in Prin's laboratory, it carried away the book. Oh, right. Yeah, right? yeah. it did. Because I, the book I failed is, to mention that. The book that, is yeah. missing at the end of the story. Right, that is true. Well, didn't Thank it, goodness. And if it hadn't, he would have burned it up. So the book would yeah, have been right. gone one way or the other. But he, but he specifically says the book was gone oh. when, he, when he's yes. describing what's happening in the story. And I think you could have maybe, although obviously uh, for less comic effect, called him Robert Harrison Blake because that's what he's named in The Haunter in the Dark, which is the sequel yeah. to this story. Oh. So the Lovecraft first stand-in is a Robert Block stand-in. Oh, because, so he's right. just unnamed in this yeah. particular story, right, but yeah. then he because actually, it's, it's supposed to be the, the this, same guy. Yeah, and so if you remember in Haunter of the Dark, uh, Lovecraft gives Blake a number of published stories, all of which are Manx on Block's published stories. Right. And this one is called The Feaster from the Stars instead of The Shambler from the Stars. Ah. Uh, implying that perhaps uh, Farnsworth Wright has put a ending spoiling title on it. Right. <laughs> right. <yeah>. Right. <laughs> It's a great that he he goes. I want to name a character Robert Block, but I don't want to use Block. How about Robert Blake? Yeah, I mean, just a, something a little less Jewy. <laughs> oh, 
It's entirely possible Lovecraft yeah. thought that. <laughs> Woo! Oh, <yeah>. So. <laughs> and now you know why even his best friends wanted to kill him every now and again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, Lovecraft did give him permission. He sent him a letter. Oh, uh, right, yeah, was, I've heard about a this. signed permission form that says, the, you know, Robert Block, you have the permission to spindle, fold, mutilate, murder, eviscerate, exsanguinate, all kinds of ways to kill uh, the undersigned H.P. Lovecraft, and he got it witnessed by um, uh, Abdullah Hazred and by the monk of Lang. <laughs> so weird. And by all kinds of, uh, of potent and puissant figures and sent it off to, to Block so that Block would feel all right about murdering Lovecraft in the story. I doubt the authenticity of those other signatures. Well, uh, <laughs> whom are you going to get to check them if not H.P. Lovecraft, my friend? Point taken. <laughs> well... That is the end of that story. We're going to transition into the next one. This was originally published in Weird Tales, November of 1936. It's called The Dark Demon, also by Robert Block. Andrew, uh, take it away. It was a demon. A dark demon. (laughs) But not too dark for Chris Mackey to handle. Actually, no, that... (laughs) I'm sorry, I've been writing. No, no, I left it. I got a little confused. I've been working on my Chris Mackey fan fiction. It got lost in there. We, can we start that over again? That's not the story. That's mine. It's really, it's just a few sentences. I don't know where it's going to go yet, but the title got me thinking. I was, I was looking at the text trying to figure out what was going on. I, yeah, it's going to be a good one. All right, this is the actual story by Robert Block. It has never been put on paper before the true story of Edgar Gordon's death. As a matter of fact, nobody but myself knows that he is dead, for people have gradually forgotten about the strange dark genius whose eldritch tales were once so popular among fantasy lovers everywhere. Perhaps it was his later work which so alienated the public, the nightmare hints and outlandish fancies of his final books. Many people branded the extravagantly worded tomes as the work of a madman, and even his correspondents refused to comment on some of the unpublished stuff he sent them. Then, too, his furtive and eccentric private life was not wholesomely regarded by those who knew him in the days of his early success. Whatever the cause, he and his writings have been doomed to oblivion by a world which always ignores what it cannot quite understand. Now everyone who does remember thinks Gordon has merely disappeared. That is good in view of the peculiar way in which he died. But I have decided to tell the truth. You see, I knew Gordon very well. I was, truthfully, the last of all his friends, and I was there at the end. I owe him a debt of gratitude for all he has done for me, and how could I more fittingly repay it than to give to the world the true facts concerning his sad mental metamorphosis and tragic death. So, Edward Gordon is this great horror writer who has seemingly just vanished, just disappeared. Nobody knows what happens to him, but somebody actually does know what has happened okay, well, to him. Well, he's also another uh, Lovecraft stand-in. Yes. So that is our third Lovecraft tonight. <laughs> If you're counting, we're getting closer to seven. So you thought this was a follow-up to Haunter the Dark, but it's not, is it? No. <laughs> I did. I did think that. Ken, Ken can... Uh, what is... There's another story that he wrote in response to horror. There, there is. The response to Haunter of the Dark is called The Shadow from the Steeple. And it's ah. a it's a actual sequel to Haunter of the Dark that discusses 
what happened to the shining trapezohedron and what happened to the library in the Federal Hill Church and all the rest of the excitement that uh, that was sort of left hanging by the lightning death of Robert Blake in that story. Also in that story in Haunter the Dark, he used Robert Block's real home address in yeah. Milwaukee in that yeah. story. He actually said where he lived, which is really pretty crazy. The, so the narrator, back to the story here, Yeah. the narrator uh, met Edgar six years ago and they were living in the same city, but they didn't know each other. And they had a common correspondent friend and he goes, oh wait, my buddy lives in your town. You should go meet him. Do you know Ed- Edgar Gordon? And he's like, oh, yeah, Edgar Gordon, he's this great writer. He's awesome. He, he lives in my Edgar town. Gordon. That's amazing. And he goes to meet him and they get along. They become great friends. Gordon is a strange guy, lived alone. He didn't get out much, but he wrote a lot of letters, voluminous correspondence, uh, but he didn't have very many close friends. And over the next three years, Edgar Gordon was a great mentor and he helped our narrator become a better writer with constructive criticism and strong encouragement. Says Gordon was a tall, thin, angular man with the pale face and deep set eyes which bespeak the dreamer. So it sounds like Lovecraft. Yeah. Now, this is, I have a question, uh, legitimate. How does he know what Lovecraft looks like? Did, now, when they become, because the record Block and Lovecraft were friends, did yeah. they write a description of what they look like to them or did they send pictures to each other? I actually, so I looked that up because I was curious as well. Um, Lovecraft did send a description of what he looked like to Block. It, it's, uh, and it, he actually pulled some of the, what we heard from it. It says, as to my appearance, I am thin and angular with a pale face. My eyes are deep set and bespeak the dreamer. <laughs> oh, and are you interested in attending a gun show? <laughs> he, and he actually spells show with an E, the, the antiquated spelling. It's, it's the gun shoe, you know? And it says, uh, good thing the Constitution allows for bear arms, because I sure got them. <laughs> also, you might want to answer the door, because my pecs are banging. <laughs> Wasn't that from Lovecraft's Tinder profile? That's right. <laughs> So that's where the description comes from. Swipe left, swipe right, it's up to you guys. So the uh, um, narrator also, did, you never really answered my question. Which I is, I don't, I, I don't know. I made that up, Chris. <laughs> really? Yes, Lovecraft did not describe his pecs as banging. <laughs> so far, there might be an attic in Iowa that will reveal. <laughs> Infinitely banging. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. Oh. So the narrator also discovers that Gordon uh, gets all of his story ideas from his dreams, just yes. like uh, Coleridge in his Kubla Khan and H.P. Lovecraft. Right. So H.P. Lovecraft is name dropped in a story where there's a proxy H.P. Lovecraft right. character. That's four Lovecraft so yeah. far. <laughs> Still too many, but if we were ever to reach that magic number, we'll see. So Gordon claimed that he could just close his eyes and begin to dream. He'd go off to sleep immediately. He would go into these dream journeys and have dream adventures, then take uh, dream breaks (laughs) at dream cafes and (laughs) drink dream coffee. I'm going to keep going with this. And read (laughs) dream dream newspapers. And then he would complain to the guy next to him about all the uh, dream politics in the news. In the dream news? In the dream news? Uh, So being an armchair psychologist, the narrator asks him to go into detail about his dreams, and he doesn't see any Freudian sublimation or repression or any wish patterns or anything like that. The dreams seem to be totally alien. There are parts of it that he can't even express with speech, 
Plus, he's got this amazing ability to remember everything. So he remembers like, everything in the dream. Exactly. It's like eidetic memory when it comes to this stuff. Right. And, and actually, in an earlier description, it said that Edgar moves himself in a dreamlike, slow way. So it's as if he himself is a creature of dreams that's living in the real mundane world. Now, these dreams he's had since childhood, and they've always take place in one location. This alien landscape with stalagmite-like black mountains, deep rocky valleys, dead suns, stone cities in the stars... Don't know what that is. And he would move in different ways. Sometimes he would be walking, sometimes he would fly, other times he would shamble with these alien creatures that were totally different than humans, but somehow intelligent. Right, so he himself wasn't always human in these dreams. He wasn't always a person. And at the time, when he was in these dreams, he was never afraid because he was always conscious that it was a dream. Though his family never had any supernatural history, except for a wizard uncle in Wales. <laughs> Seriously, that's it. That's all he gives you. We have a wizard uncle in Wales, but he doesn't go into it. And I was like, is it because he's embarrassed? Kind of a dumb wizard, like not a Gandalf, more of a Wizzo kind of situation. Wizzo. Do you remember Wizzo? Chicago. Thing? I thought Wizzo would kill. No? All right. <laughs> Thank you. The Bozo Show. There we go. Thank you. That's it. Yeah, but I, I think a wizard <laughs> uncle counts as supernatural history in the family. I do, too. It's an ancestor, not an uncle. It doesn't say uncle. It says, it says uncle. It says we ancestor. wouldn't have written it down unless it said yeah. uncle. I'm sure you wouldn't, but it says ancestor. <laughs> really? It yeah. may say ancestor at, on the text that is actually from the book, but I'm sure he was an uncle. Well, I mean, I'm sure he was an uncle. I just don't think he was, yeah. you know, Gordon's aunt, uncle. He was a I, certain uncle. A yeah. certain <laughs> He was an infinite uncle. <laughs> uh, where did we get uncle? Did we just want him to be an uncle? Yeah. I think so. You're right. No. One of his ancestors had been well, a wizard in I'm Wales. Right. That's all it's how I knew. You know. Yeah. It, Ken's, Ken's always right. Uh, That's hilarious. Uh, a lot... <laughs> A lot of the things that he had dreamed, he had later found when he was reading scary books. So he's like, oh, well, my gosh, things that I'm dreaming have been written about in these scary books. And he's seen Azathoth and Yoggoth, and he's claimed to actually touch Nyarlathotep. The narrator thinks maybe you got to make a little joke about it, but he decides not to. It was about this time that Gordon's favor was waning. His first book, Night Gaunts, was a huge failure because it was morbid in its themes. The, there was just too much for the, the audience. They, they weren't into it as too Well, the narrator wasn't even human anymore. All of his narrators are starting to become these alien beings, so people can't connect with it. Right, and that gels with his earlier dreams where he would be in different alien bodies and right. experiencing those different, those different things. Uh, one of these creatures he would write from the perspective of, it wasn't your typical monster, it wasn't a vampire werewolf kind of thing. It was something truly other, and he called it the principal evil. This creature offered up these new metaphysical ideas, which were totally nuts. And uh, this is the opening bit from one of the privately printed books called Souls of Chaos. So, Andrew. This world is but a tiny island in the dark sea of infinity. And there are horrors swirling all around us. Around us. Rather, let us say, amongst us. I know, for I have seen them in my dreams, and there are more things in this world than sanity can ever see. I'm kind of into it. I don't know why it didn't do very well. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, he's dropped most of his correspondence. He focuses primarily on these eccentric thinkers in the Orient, and he even begins shunning the narrator a bit, and his visits get less frequent, and the visitor also notices that Gordon's library is starting to have more scary books in it. Certain scary books. 
the word uh, the word certain is used eight times in this story. <laughs> it's just I needed to know, so I counted them. Eventually, Gordon stopped going out at all, and he had all of his necessities delivered to his house. He would sleep all day and then just write. And he was getting thinner and paler, and he kind of looked like he was a drug addict. Except he's careful to point out he looks like a drug addict, but his physique had not wasted away like an addict's would, so he's thin and pale, but the pecs... (laughs) Still banging. So he uh, also seems to be crazy. Now... We get to the good stuff. Gordon tells the narrator about his writings, and it's not for public consumption. He's been told to write these things down. By whom? According to Gordon, he has been... I'm going to answer my own question. Yeah, do it. Uh, (laughs) According to Gordon, he has been chosen to be a messiah, the messenger of the Dark One, a.k.a. the demon messenger. But he's not evil. No, no. With a name like that, you might think he's evil. (laughs) He's not. He's just alien. And he wants Gordon to write these books and to give them to people that are in the know and they're gonna know when the time is right and they'll be ready to have a mental rapport with super alien intelligences. Right, and that idea is present in a lot of modern people who do the Lovecraft stories where Lovecraft's a character that all of these things were real and that he was just channeling it and telling everybody about it. We we talked a little bit before about William Lumley who Lovecraft co-wrote The Diary of Alonzo Typer with he was a bit off his nut as well, and he warned Lovecraft and the other Weird Tales authors they were unwitting vehicles for the revelations of Cthulhu, Azathoth, Kram, <laughs> and other outer entities. So, in a way, this all actually happened, according to William Lumley. And there's, uh, there's a very, uh, I don't want to say very strong, but there's a somewhat influential tradition in conventional black magic, left-hand magic, various sorts of ceremonial magic, that believe that Lovecraft was an unconscious prophet, that he was yep. speaking these, uh, Kenneth Grant, for example, ties Lovecraft's mythos in with Aleister Crowley's mythos and in yeah. with the voodoo yeah. deities and with the dark version of the Kabbalah, the, the cliff oak, the hidden spheres behind the regular spheres. Uh, and it sort of went, what do I want to say, balls to the wall? Is that yeah. the technical term? Yeah, that's it, that's it, that's um, correct. On sort of making Lovecraft into a figure of reverence for various black magicians and left-handed path practitioners. And then it keeps showing up. So I've got a book by a guy named Muller that talks about how all of Lovecraft's stories are alchemy, that he's writing alchemical uh, 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 formulae, (laughs) and he either doesn't know it or he knows it, but he's sort of doing it on the DL so that only the real elite like Muller will be able Mm. to to have it published with a handsome rainbow cover on it. Anyway, it's it's a... long-standing tradition now. It, it, oh, yeah? Do you think that it stems from these these block stories? Because this also, in the last one and this one, you know, the Lovecraft stand-ins are described as, you know, hermits and, and dreamers and stuff, and that is sort of the misconception of what Lovecraft was like. Yeah. And, you know, the real Lovecraft was a pretty funny guy and yeah. got out a lot, Very and he wasn't, a, yeah. you know, he wasn't a hermit. He had a lot of friends all over the, all over the country. So I wonder how influential the stories that we're actually reading tonight have been in crafting the public perception of what Lovecraft's real personality was like, because they're, they're not right. <laughs> right, well, to Robert Block, they might, because he never, they never met, right? That, that could yeah. be. Lovecraft and, and, and Robert Block were just correspondents. Yeah. Block wrote to him as a teenager and said, I love your stories and weird tales. Would you look at some of my stuff? And then he became yeah. his mentor, but they never got together or met yeah. each other at all. So that's a good point. I think a lot of people have that misconception. It possibly did yeah. come from these and, stories. And part of it is Lovecraft sort of, in his life, enjoyed 
sort of yeah, he, little legend of what he was he, like. You know, out apparently, there, you he know. sent Block a signed permission slip saying, "Do do whatever you yeah, want." Right, so yeah. you know, he's kind of it's his and, own and, damn fault. If and, people and, think and like a lot of he's people, he, he would sort of uh, magnify the degree of his own esoteric yeah. learning yeah. just to win arguments. In <laughs> he had he had letters instead of the internet, but it's the exact same thing yeah, that you see true. now. And then uh, lots of very sloppy, uh, psychologically based biographies said, oh, obviously anyone who would write all this stuff is obviously some sort of weird recluse weirdo, and that's why no one liked him and he was weird. And it's like, no, that's not true. You're just a Freudian. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say, it's a credit to Lovecraft's writing that these people, practitioners of black magic, thought that his stories were so inspiring and so amazing that they decided to act like they were real. Yeah. Like to go, I, you know, this is a fiction story. Lovecraft never claimed that they're real, but they decided this is so scary, it must be real. That's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. It is. I hope yeah. that the Chris Mackey stories someday <laughs> achieve the same degree of. <laughs> I have faith in you. I know. I think they will. Well, I got a great main character. <laughs> His, uh, back to the story. His dreams since childhood have been preparing Gordon for this, and he says a few months ago he started having different shaped dreams, which I thought was kind of an interesting way to Mm. to describe it, that he went into the darkness beyond space, where there's more than three dimensions. Right, and while he was out there, he met somebody very special. He came out of the dark and um, communicated with me. Not by words. I'm thankful that my previous dreams had been so arranged as to inure me against visual horror. Otherwise, I should never have been able to stand the sight of him. You see, he is not like humans, and the shape he chose to wear is pretty awful. But once you understand, you can realize that the shape is just as allegorical as the legends ignorant men have fostered about him and the others. He looks Something like a medieval conception of the demon Asmodeus, black all over and furry, with a snout like a hog, green eyes, and the claws and fangs of a wild beast. So Gordon goes on to explain that he looks this way because that's how people pictured him in the olden days, and mass belief has a curious influence on intangible forces. So. Now he sees the Dark One every night, and they have a rap session, and he writes everything down. <laughs> but it's a pretty scary description to me. You know, he's like a furry space demon. Well, yeah. Guy. He, yeah, well, he's got, like, the, probably the goat's feet and the, yeah. you know, the bat wings and all that I mean, stuff. I, I think he's more startling, though. I mean, again, when you're used <clears throat> to the Lovecraftian Lovecraft monsters right. mm. that are all kinds of indescribable things put together, they're vertiginous, they, they're not contained in a body type things. They're, they're slimy and oozy and they have tentacles and whatnot. A furry pig-nosed dude is kind of a come down, right? I mean, you'd, you'd, you wouldn't want Nobody to... has ever spoken that sentence in the English language, ever. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't want to see one, you know, just like, you know, in a dark alley necessarily, but it's sure. not... It's not a shoggoth, right? I mean, it's no. a... It's, a it, it, it's an interesting aspect that in this Lovecraftian story, Block has gone to the pre-Lovecraftian Right. well to describe horrors. Yeah. I mean, in, in Shambler, he does a proper Lovecraft monster, right. Yes. right? That's awful. But this is, well, like, you know, you could you could draw this guy. You could draw Asmodeus. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I'm glad I was inured to horror. It's like, well, you were nerd to being, you know, startled by a pig guy. You weren't... <laughs> <laughs> it, just, it just seems like, you know, for, for my money, this story that has been racketing along so well yeah. really lets itself down a little yeah. bit with 
the yeah. always Asmodeus. Uh, really? Well, it keeps that going in that regard, right, right, as yeah. we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's got an amazing conclusion. I'm, so, I'm really excited. All right, okay. <laughs> when the Dark One wishes it, the universal truce will be shared with humanity and Gordon will be his representative on Earth, the Godhead. He shall become the Dark One incarnate. Gordon then tells the narrator to beat it because he's got work to do. Mm. And this crazy talk just leaves the narrator completely dumbfounded, so he just goes, ah, okay, and he leaves. Despite the craziness of the story, it seems disturbingly coherent, is what he says. Well, I think, you know, because he's saying crazy things, but he's not having a schizophrenic flight of ideas or anything like that. He's really putting it together in a way that you can understand. It's just the notions themselves are pretty bad. And it ties in with all of the other stories that he's told and with his yeah. previous dreams and with the Necronomicon, right? So in, so. in his madness, there's a consistency that right, he's exactly. admiring. Yeah. I see, yes, yes. The narrator sees a lot of what's in the Necronomicon in his stories, and he thinks that, that this dark one that he's talking about sounds a lot like Nyarlathotep. Mm-hmm. Over, over, <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> so over the next that's, few that's days, true. the narrator... <laughs> Does his own research, reading over old correspondences, talking to Gordon's editor and friends, even looking into scary books, but nothing cleared up what is happening to Gordon. Nope. So, so the narrator decides that he's gonna go over there and give it to him straight, say, look, you're having problems. You need to see someone, and that someone is a, is a psychologist. Yes. That is what you need to do. A shrink, and th this is about three weeks after their last conversation, he comes to this conclusion. I'm gonna go over there and give him a talking to. So he marches over there on May Eve to have a talk. Now he's not exactly why sure. Why is it, hold on, why is that, is it, is May Eve a spooky? That's Walpurgis Knocked. That's Walpurgis Knocked? Yeah, it all goes down on May Eve. Man. Yeah, come on. Sorry, I'm, a, you know, I'm familiar with Walpurgis Knocked, but nobody calls it May Eve where I'm from, which is here and... <laughs> you guys know what I'm saying, Walpurgis Knocked. Uh, yeah. So he's not exactly sure what he's going to say when he gets there, but he'll figure it out when he gets there. Oh, and by the way, he's packing heat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He says, why I pocketed the revolver, I cannot say. Some inner instinct warned me that I might meet with a violent response. But really, I think it's because he knows he's in a Lovecraftian story. And Unless he's walking the streets of Providence on Walpurgis Knocked, I suspect you should be bringing a revolver regardless. <laughs> just sound planning from yeah. my perspective. How bad was Providence? Well, remember, <laughs> if this is the same Providence where they've got, you know, they've got Edgar Allan Poe's wandering the streets. Sure. They've got <laughs> Seven of them, they, yeah. They've got uh, Haunters of the Dark going on. Okay, you're right. This is a bad scene, right? Yeah. Point taken. He gets to the... French Canadians lurking around every corner. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Portuguese. <Stop>. <laughs> <laughs> He gets to the house, it's dark, he rings the bell, no answer, rings it again, still no answer, so he just busts in the door. He goes into the study, it's dark, but he can see there's a form lying on the couch, uh, resting, apparently, and he goes to turn on the light, but lightning strikes, and he sees the room is just covered with all these manuscripts and papers, and then... And then there's this other lightning flash in which he sees something else. Something that makes him pull a gun and fire three shots. He hears a scream, and then he screams, and then he grabs up all the manuscripts and he just runs out of the house. He runs back home, burns all the papers. A week later, when the cops finally go to, to check on the house, it's empty. There's no body, nothing. Folks just think that Edgar went nuts and I don't know, went out in the wilderness and lived in a cave. Who knows? Sure. But the narrator, he knows better. No. No, Edgar Gordon was not insane. He was a genius and a fine man. But he told the truth in his books about horrors being around us and amongst us. 
because when that flash of lightning blazed across the room, I saw what lay in sleep upon the couch. This is what I shot. That is what sent me screaming into the storm, and that is what makes me sure that Gordon was not crazy, but spoke the truth. For the incarnation had occurred. There on the couch, dressed in the clothes of Edgar Henfist Gordon, lay a demon like Asmodeus, a black furry creature with the snout of a hog, green eyes, and the dreadful fangs and talons of some wild beast. It was the dark one of Edgar Gordon's dreams. <laughs> that's, that's the end of the story. I laughed out loud when I read yeah. that. <laughs> because the big shocking conclusion is that there's a monster taking a nap on his couch. <laughs> it's not even like, you know, I, things just like, you know, it's, little, little, little snout nose, little furry demon guy. It's a monster dressed in clothes, too. Yeah. yeah. So he's got like a button-up shirt and trousers. He's all cuddled up, like Dagwood and Blondie. He's just had a nice meal, and he, and, you know, he's taking it. <laughs> and and who knew that the primal evil intelligence, Nierlathotep himself, yeah. Osmodeus. Oh well, you know, three gunshots. That's all it takes. Yep. There right, you go. Done. The world is safe. Thanks. Well, also, <laughs> he says he shoots. The thing screams, and then he screams, which makes it even more ridiculous. Yeah. Bam, bam, bam. The thing was like, ah! <laughs> I was having a dream. <laughs> Why? <laughs> he just runs away. He didn't get caught for doing that either. No, he got away with it. Yeah, he, he got, got away, away with it. it. So got free. The, uh, looking at both of these stories, uh, the yes. first one, the, the Shambler from the Stars, I thought was pretty cool, actually, and pretty creepy, and the descriptions were, were kind of dark, and the, the monster was cool, and yeah. all that stuff. Went. The second one, however... That's the thing with some of these stories, though, because I enjoyed the second one, maybe for the wrong reasons, but I enjoyed the second one more. Really? really? Yeah, oh, I did. Yeah. <laughs> Although the first one, I think, is a better story. What do you guys think? I sort of uh, don't like them because I think they have contributed to this misperception of Lovecraft <laughs> that, that bugs me personally. Fair enough, so right. to the degree that they totally mischaracterize what Lovecraft was like, I don't like them. Gotcha. <laughs> I like Shambler a great deal because it's part of that. People take the mythos too seriously. The notion that Lovecraft is sending people permission to kill him and he's right, saying, oh sure. yeah, absolutely. And then Block makes up a crazy book and he puts the crazy book in his crazy books. Right. I enjoy that aspect Which of Which just goes to show sort of, you that you know, yeah, Lovecraft that a, had a sense of humor. No, he's, he's, yeah. he's absolutely, he's a great guy, uh, very friendly, very open to other writers. And the thing that really touched me in the second story was the degree to which Block is really sort of telling Lovecraft, because at the time Lovecraft is still alive when this is going to be published, he knows yeah. Lovecraft will read this, and he writes, you know, what Edgar Gordon did for me in the next three years can never be adequately told. His able assistance, friendly criticism, and kind encouragement finally succeeded in making a writer of sorts out of me. That is a, that's a very personal message from Block to Lovecraft. That's yeah. like a, a beautiful thing, and then to have it end with a, a three bullets and a pig man. Like, <laughs> see, oh, what, really? see what kind of writer I became? That's, yeah, take that, Howard. <laughs> I've now ignored everything you taught me about how to do a weird tale. Oh, boy. And, and also, I just sold this to weird tales, which you couldn't do with your stuff. So, yeah. Uh, it's, it's really, it's it's really sad, sad in, a, in a lot of ways that this story, which, like I say, it begins so strongly, and you're so yeah. willing for this story to just really sort of turn that corner and be awesome, is not. Yeah. Is not. And, and even the quote where he quotes from The Soul of Chaos, 
that of course is a Call of Cthulhu mank, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Says, that this world is but a tiny island in the dark yeah. sea of infinity. That's yeah. that's Lovecraft's words. Yeah. And then he sort of brings a little from beyond attitude with mm-hmm. the horrors that are swirling among us. Yep. That's really good quad Lovecraftianism yeah. in the voice of Gordon. And it's it's so weird that he gets it all the way up until he has to write an ending. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like Saturday Night Live syndrome. It's like, this, yeah, really strong, but oh, well, all right. We don't hey, have an out. We're, we're gone. There you go. There you go. Pigmen. Everything's pigmen now. <laughs> <laughs> well, then he would just keep repeating the story with the pigman sleeping on a, on a, on a different yeah, uh, piece right. of furniture and endless, sleeping outside. Endless pigmen. Yes. Just, uh-huh. Anything to get Horatio Sands on screen. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of ending with an out. <laughs> yes. That draws us to a conclusion for these stories and for this live podcast. My goodness. Robert Block, of course, wrote Psycho, which is why, why we're doing that. But we're going to take a short break. Yes. Uh, get some drinks, use the restrooms if you need to, and then we're going to come back and do a quiz show. Guys, thanks for being a part of this with us. If you don't respond to romance, Jack, you dead. Halloween spooks outside my window. Halloween spooks behind the tree. I wish that the children could see, but I can't find them for the life of me. And there's Halloween spooks outside my window Hope you all enjoying the evening so far. Thank you for being such a fantastic audience. We are now ready to begin the quiz. Welcome everybody to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast Quiz Show. I am Dave Stinton, your arbitrary arbiter of Arkham. Thank you very much. Uh, and I would like to introduce you from your left to your right, your panelists for tonight. Please welcome the unutterable Andrew Lehman. The squamous Shad Viper. <laughs> yes. A certain infinite Chris Lackey. <laughs> and the non-Euclidean Ken Height. Yeah. Keeping score for us tonight is my lovely wife, Jen Ellison. Give it up for Jen. Yay! And yes, the adjective I chose for my wife was lovely. Uh, here's how it's gonna work. I'm gonna quiz these gentlemen on their knowledge of H.P. Lovecraft themes and characters and quotes. Uh, Jen will tally up the score. The score is meaningless. And we will declare a champion tonight. So are you guys ready to start? Yes. Yes. Let's do it. The quiz begins. Lovecraft once talked about one of his creations coming from a dream. Quote, I began to have nightmares of the most hideous description peopled with things. What was this thing and who was the artist who inspired it? Chris. Uh, Children walking hand in hand. (laughs) And Hummel was the artist. 
That is terrifying, but incorrect. <laughs> Chad, it's, well, one of Lovecraft's creations that folks know is, my favorite is the rocket ship made out of cats <laughs> from the dream quest of unknown Kadath. I think that that is the creation that you're talking about, and it was influenced by the very popular song of the era, Yes, We Have No Bananas, But Can We Interest You in a Cat Ship? <laughs> is that right? That is also incorrect. Ah. Any other guesses? Yes. I'm confident it was Night Gaunts, but I do not know who... I thought he dreamed those up. So Night Gaunts yeah. is correct. Uh, that's no. one point for Andrew, if anyone wants. A bonus 11 points. <laughs> Anybody in the audience know it? That's correct. Goose that, of yes. you get a, you'll get a prize. 11 points goes out to the audience. You'll get a prize. All right. points the audience squander. is totally going to win. I know. <laughs> All right. If your fruit turns to gray powder, what might be the problem? Who buzzed? I don't even see. Ah, okay. It was it it. Oh, it was Ken. Ah, Ken. Okay. Ah, Ken. Ken. Got the red light. Um, uh, high fructose corn syrup. That is incorrect. <laughs> yes. Not global warming. Not global warming. Whatever it is, it is not <laughs> global warming. <laughs> yes, Chris. Uh, Farmhands goofing around with laser guns. Very close. I'm afraid uh, the correct answer is a meteorite from another planet oh. with an unknown color. Ah, uh, color out of space. That'll do it. Yes. That'll do it every time. What may you find in Meath County? Meath County, yes. Crystal Meath. Crystal Meath. <laughs> I'm afraid that is incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Pressed Meath sandwiches. Uh, delicious. True, but not the answer we're looking for. <laughs> yes, Chris. Meath and greets? No, 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 no. <clears throat> Meath and Grease? What is that even? That was the best I could do. Like Meath and Grease? I guess. Meath and Grease. Meath and Grease. I can't do any better than that, so I'm not even going to buzz. I actually don't know. Uh, Points Uh, uh, for Chris, just for the hell of it. (laughs) But it is, the correct answer is the Cursed Castle of Kildare, which is also a great Dr. Seuss book, if you (laughs) (laughs) All right, quote time, gentlemen. Finish the quote. Certainly do not disagree with you concerning the essential solitude of the individual, for it seems to me the plainest of all truths that no highly organized and freely developed mind can possibly what? Jen. Understand what you're talking about. (laughs) Accurate, but no. (laughs) Yes, Andrew. Get along without chocolate. No, no, (laughs) true. Fair. Chris. Enjoy keeping up with the Kardashians. Uh, that is definitely not true. It's no. quite a nice program. Anyone else? <laughs> it's yours to win or lose. It's mine to win or lose. Um, no sufficiently developed mind can be distinguishable from magic. No, that's something else. <laughs> Uh, the correct answer is envisage an external world having much in common with the external world envisaged by any other mind. Duh. I think we were what? all pretty much saying the yeah. same yeah. thing. Two yeah. points for each, please. Where yes. was that? And yeah. where was that? What is the source of that? I, I assume it's Lovecraft, of course, but uh, that must is, be a letter. I, it's not here, but I, my guess is that it's a letter to August W. Derleth, 19th or 26th of December, 1930. Oh. That's <laughs> Good guess, that's a Dave. Good, that's, a, right. that's a certain guess, all right. Yes. <laughs> Nigh infinite. All right. Next question. H.P. Lovecraft, Ambrose Bierce, and Robert Chambers all contributed to what? Yes. Ladies' Home Journal. <laughs> yes, Chris. Hands Across America. No. 
<laughs> yes, Andrew, I, I see you Decade, Decades of insomnia. No. <laughs> Chad, it is yours to lose. Yes, Chad. Well, uh, creations of those authors were in True Detective season one. I wish to God they'd been in True Detective season two. Oh. <laughs> Uh, I've never seen the show. Man, it got bad. I think they also are authors that I am currently using a podcast that I've been doing for six years to cover that is going to make me unemployable. That is, that is a second answer I would offer up for that one. Chad's unemployment is correct. We would also have accepted Hastur. Note how we cleverly got Dave to say that. Instead. Yes. It's all the skis. Oh. We all knew the answer, but we wouldn't say it. I'm not it. saying it. I'm not Cause, saying it. Because I said it like three times already. Yeah. So. Should not be named. Well, do you know this? The elder sign, branch or star? Branch. Yes. Branch. I heard branch. <laughs> and branch is correct. Chad. Now, but hold on, in that Space Eaters story, weren't, didn't they do an elder sign with their hands? Which I imagine looked like this. <laughs> yes. Jazz hands. Yes, they did. They did. The elder sign, they did the elder sign. That's yes. like the sign of the cross in, the, in Space oh, it's Eaters. Oh, yeah. it's the sign of a cross. Sign of the cross. Also this. <laughs> For me. <laughs> and also in uh, Shadow of Innsmouth, the Sartan sign that drives away the old ones is in the shape of a swastika. Right? Yes. So, yeah. there we go. That also know. works on uh, deep ones in, uh, yeah, Shadow Arms. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah. It's all good to know. Uh, yeah. Jen, please award each of them five points. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to play a few more rounds of Branch or Star, if that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like the audience consensus was, was Branch. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, Michelle Branch, Branch or Star? <laughs> <laughs> Branch Ricky, Branch or Star? Star. 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 That's correct. Forrest Whitaker, Branch or Star? <laughs> yes. Star. Star is correct. Yes. James Woods, Branch or Star? Both. Both. Branch, branch is correct. Both. Phil Oaks, Branch or Star? <laughs> branch. Branch is correct. <laughs> I get all of those points, Jen. Thank you very much. All right, back to the quiz. Why did Joe Slater die? Yes, Ken. Um, uh, because it was just his time. Perhaps. Yes, Chris. It was a tragic prank. Oh. Yeah, it was Halloween, and Zach and Screech thought it would be really funny <laughs> to surprise him. Little did they know he had a heart uh, defect, and it killed him. And that was, uh, God, that was fourth season, I think. <laughs> Uh, that is incorrect. Any other guesses? Yes. What? Because he had no courage. Aww. <laughs> uh, Chad, I don't know. Yours or no? Okay. Mm. Well, uh, it turns out his gross body could not undergo the needed adjustments between ethereal life and planet life. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Reamer knew the whole time. So yeah. Zero points awarded. Here's a challenge: connect H.P. Lovecraft to Kevin Bacon <laughs> in fewer than four steps. Yes. H.P. Lovecraft was, uh, wrote, his, wrote the story, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, that starred Chris Sarandon, who was... In the movie adaptation. In the movie adaptation, who was in uh, Dog Day Afternoon with Al Pacino, who was in a movie that starred Kevin Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm buzzing in on this. 
Yes, Jen. I can do it. Uh, there's this movie. I don't know if any of y'all have ever seen this movie, Necronomicon. It was in the 90s. Pretty bad with Jeffrey Combs starring as H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah. Also in that movie was David Warner, who appears in a lot of H.P. Lovecraft movies. David Warner played the character Lovejoy in Titanic, Billy Zane's evil henchman. <laughs> also in Titanic was Bill Paxton, who was in Apollo 13 with Kevin, Kevin Bacon. Bacon. Nice work. All right, Lovecraft died on the Ides of March in 1937. But a very special bank opened up in Chicago that very same day. What was special about this Chicago bank? Yes, Chris. Was it a spank bank? Those have no beginning and no end. Yes, Jed. Uh, I assume he left behind a plethora of baked beans, so perhaps it was a baked bean bank of some kind. It was not a banked, baked bean bank. But wouldn't that be delicious, folks? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it would. Mm. I'd like to make a withdrawal right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, if there are no guesses, that was I would a, That was a answer. hobo bank, right? That they would have to <laughs> yeah. make beans. Yes. It was a blood bank. Oh. That is oh. correct. So the first blood bank was, was here in Chicago. The University of Chicago. It was the first blood bank. Uh, Lovecraft was born on August 20th, 1890. How did America grow that same year? Yes, Andrew. The Louisiana Purchase. That is incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Jen. I believe that ice cream sandwiches came out in the 1890s, which are partially responsible for the growth of America, <laughs> I imagine. Also incorrect. Yes, Chris? Is it uh, I don't, Wyoming? I don't... It is Wyoming! Wyoming! Oh! Wyoming became a state, and uh, I have some Wyoming trivia if you guys are interested. Let's do it. Uh, everyone loves some Wyoming trivia. Do you know that it was the first state in the Union to have women's suffrage? Mm. Congratulations. Good nice. job, Wyoming. In all yeah. other states, they did not suffer. <laughs> and that's when America went to hell. <laughs> no, I meant for Wyoming. I'll shake my fist right back. You shouldn't have the right to shake your fist at me. <laughs> it's a man's job. Unless there's a rolling pin in it. Whoa! Whoa! Yeah. Get him a rolling pin. <laughs> oh, you can do That's okay. That's, a good, that's all right for ladies. Okay, let's eject into the next question. <laughs> According to the story Dunwich Horror, how should one deal with an invisible creature? Yes, Andrew. Run. Run. <laughs> Run is correct. Uh, I would also have accepted uh, convince it to put on a shirt. <laughs> I've been doing police sketches all day. <laughs> get it, guys, because it's blank paper. Oh, yeah, I get it. Uh, Chris, I get it. Wait. Do you have a rebuttal? No, it's uh, the, you uh, shoot it with the powder of Ibn Ghazi. Yes. And then you run. <laughs> no, they don't run. They, uh, they, they, uh, they say a spell and they, uh, that's it. Right? The, the power yes. of Ibn Ghazi is also an acceptable, uh, so five points for each of them, please. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> All right. 
It is time for an HP lightning round. Uh-oh. I am the going cleansing to, bolt of lightning. Say, we're all gonna die. The cleansing bolt of lightning round. I'm going to say a quote, and you guys are going to tell me the character who huh. recites this quote. Oh. All right? Oh. Oh. Quote number one. Hmm. Catched in the rain, Biggie. Oh. Yes. The creepy old man from uh, Picture in the House. That is yes. correct. Yes. Can you do it real quick? Which Catched in the rain, B. Yeah. yeah. That's the sugar. Vittles you cannot buy nor grow. <laughs> Next quote. The deuce knows what they eat, Thurber. Yes. That would be Richard Upton Pickman talking to his correct. buddy Thurber. That is absolutely correct. Okay, next quote. Dan, for God's sake, the pit of the Shoggoths, down the 6,000 steps, the abomination of abominations. I never would let her take me, and then I found myself. Yes. That's got to be, um, uh, that's from Thing on the Doorstep, uh, another, uh, Derby. Donald Trump. Donald Trump <laughs> is correct. No. These classiest 6,000 steps. <laughs> pit of the Shoggoths is going to be huge. First class, first class pit. First, first class pit. We got some great people working on those Shoggoths. The best Shoggoths. Great people. 6,000 steps, Smart more people. steps than any other pit. <laughs> Escalator steps. That's right. It's all marble. It's all marble. Next quote. Well, as I says, the natives met the things on the little volcanic islet, going there in canoes with the sacrifices, etc., and bringing back any of the gold-like jewels as was coming to them. Yes, Chad. That is from the Chris Mackey adventure. <laughs> little volcanic islet. Part of the Chris Mackey Young Adventure Spies series. Yes. And I, and I believe he's speaking to the Lucky Charms leprechaun. <laughs> right. We're both correct, yes. That is Zadok Allen from Shadow Over. Yeah. Also yeah. correct. All right, next quote. Long have I missed thee, Era, for I was but young when we went into exile. But my father was thy king, and I shall come again to thee. For it is so decreed of fate. All through seven lands have I sought thee, and someday shall I reign over thy groves and gardens, thy streets and palaces, and sing to men who shall know whereof I sing and laugh not nor turn away. Chris. Jesus. That is correct. That is correct. Yes. I believe it's Elrond. Yeah. Word? <laughs> no, from Lord of the Rings. Lord. Oh. I believe that's Irinon. From the quest of Iranon, the reader of which we have here tonight, Graham Eberhardt, is uh, there. He is. I heard it in your voice as soon as the quote came out, so I knew. I didn't. I didn't want to bring that up. Nothing but A-list titles for Graham. Okay, one last character quote to identify. It was Asaph's coffin, Birch, just as I thought. I knew his teeth with the front ones missing on the upper jaw. Never, for God's sake, show those wounds. Yes. Lovecraft's worst story in the vault. What is the character? Well, the character is, uh, I don't know, who cares? Terrible story. <laughs> that is, is that correct. the one? The creepy old guy. Yeah. Somebody come back out of, their, their legs got sawed yeah, off because, yeah, yeah. to fit him yeah. in their coffin? Yeah. No. That's yeah. a pretty good one, Ken. It's I don't know. Doctor, oh, please, doctor, please. 
Doctor, a- it's not Doctor Ash. It's Doctor. Doctor Dracula. Doctor. No. He's a doctor. Dr. He's a doctor, isn't he? Yes, it's oh, definitely Doctor Zayas. Zayas is very close. That would be a good story. Does somebody, does somebody say it? Do you know it? Doctor Who. It's not. No. <laughs> That's pretty good. Anybody know? Nobody knows. Okay, nobody because knows. they all know it's a terrible story and uh, not worth knowing. That's pretty that good, though. <laughs> Who is it? Doctor Davis. Doctor Davis. Doctor Davis. Davis. Sorry, man. All right. Finish this Lovecraft quote. Quote, the one test of the really weird is simply this. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Andrew. This is Chris's joke, but it's got Kardashians in it. (laughs) (laughs) Any other guesses? (laughs) No. Yes. Uh, what you do is you heat the weird up to like 600 oh. degrees and then you put the litmus paper over the uh, flask and if the litmus paper turns aquamarine, it's really weird. But if it stays teal, it's not really weird. That is correct. Uh, that is, I would also have accepted accordion-based pop song parodies. Accordion-based pop song parodies. So Lovecraft wrote this, quote, his joys were sordid and his morals mean. Through his gross thoughts, a native vigor ran, from which he deemed himself the perfect man. But want of decency, his rank decreased and sunk him to the level of the beast. Would that his muse had died before her birth, nor spread such foul corruption o'er the earth. Who was he bitching about? <laughs> yes, Andrew. Donald Trump. Ah. Yes, Chris. Kanye West? <laughs> Not Kanye West. Uh, Chad. I believe that's Walt Whitman that he was talking it about. It was Walt Whitman. Uh, yeah. It was not ever Walt Whitman. It was Walt Whitman. Hated Walt oh, Whitman. Wow. Walt Shitman? Yeah. Like, <laughs> would be more flattering than what he had to say. Wow. That's pretty... <laughs> what was his beat with Walt Whitman? Walt Whitman like, wrote in free verse. He didn't write in rhymed Augustan couplets. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And plus, Walt Whitman was awesome, and Lovecraft hated awesome poetry. He, he did. <laughs> yeah. That's true. <laughs> Goodness. All right. Where might you find a bottle with a small piece of lead suspended pendulum-wise from a string inside of it? Yes, Jed. In a Lovecraft story. That is correct. <laughs> that is absolutely correct. We're looking for something a little more specific. Yes, Andrew. Is it, wherever it is isn't where we're going next after this. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes, Chris. The, it's the terrible old man. It's the terrible old man's house in yeah, yeah. Kingsport. Oh. Uh, in Kingsport. It, Kingsport. I didn't know how to be that specific. So you don't, do not get the points. I guess. Oh. I'm sorry. Yes. Yes, next to a Vice President Elbridge Jerry's house, it turns out. Wow, what? Yeah. Very nice. No, if you go to the house in Marblehead yeah. that Lovecraft may or may not have based the terrible old man's house on, oh. it's right next to... The uh, house of Elbridge Jerry. Now, the only problem is he wrote the story before he ever went to Marblehead. So, people who bitch and moan about, you know, Wait a minute. causality yeah, will say that. <laughs> but I'm going to say if you get the terrible old man living next to the vice president of the United States, you take that with both hands and you run. Yep. 20 points. <laughs> All right. According to Eben Calican, what is said to have happened in 738 AD? Yes, Andrew. Isn't that when uh, Alhazred wrote the Necronomicon? Uh, well, 
He wrote something. Someone wrote something. I don't know these words. So <laughs> that's he not did exactly what it Abdul says. Abdul Alhazred wrote the Necronomicon. Uh, it's it's uh, Al Azif. Yes, that is correct. Yeah, yeah. Al Azif is what I was looking Which for. Which is the Necronomicon? Is it the Necronomicon? Okay, yeah, points for everybody. <laughs> that's when it was written? Except for me. Yeah, 700 and something, right? What was it? Yeah. 780, 738. There you go. All right. I thought that was the year Your that he was torn apart in the, in the city square in Damascus by invisible monsters. Right, and I think that's what the, Isn't the same, the same year? year. I that, well, did he write it and then got torn apart? I thought he yeah. wrote it and no, then he wrote it after. Well, he didn't apart. get torn apart and then write it. <laughs> Might have. Maybe it was, you know, Elbridge Jerry. Could <laughs> Which, in our first story we did tonight, there was a very similar death of being torn apart by invisible forces. Yeah, right. right. Absolutely. Yeah. Making so connections, guys. And obviously, block. Makes you think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. All right. We have another HP lightning round. I will name a character. You tell me what story that character is from. All right? All right. Buzzer's yeah. ready. Buzzer's ready. John Richmond. <laughs> Audience. No, That's, you're thinking of Sidney Carton. Sidney Carton. John Richmond is from The Green Meadow. Oh, Nobody's read that boo. story. Boo. Co-written by Winifred Jackson. I do know that. Points for Jen. So I get points. Victoria Write Jackson. Write down, Jen. She's not that old. She's not that old. Not Next character, Nefren Ka. Yes. Honor in the Dark. Yes, that is correct. Donovan. Yes, Chad. V, V. Did you say V? V. Yeah, v. It was Mark Singer's character, Donovan. He would always have his shirt unbuttoned down to here, carrying the blaster. Looked awesome. That guy could, like, he walked around with a gun better than anybody has in any television or motion picture ever. I yeah, can't like, you know, that. He's like, you know, he goes up against walls and looks. It's really cool when he does it. I don't know why. Oh, is that, it you is. You guys know Mark Singer, the Beastmaster? Go back and watch V. You will never see cooler gun. It, I, is that the same Donovan that wrote The Sign of Mellow Yellow? Uh, Pretty good. The sign of yellow mellow sign. yellow. I get it. Right, thank you. Well, it, it is. <laughs> it's a pretty deep cut. It's the Call of Cthulhu. Aww. Well, fair enough. Professor Francis I, Morgan. I was gonna say that, but I, then I second guessed myself. <laughs> uh, the next oh. character, Professor Francis Morgan. Yes. Dunwich Horror. Dunwich Horror. Oh no. Stereo points. Oh, Stereo points Stereo for points. both of them. Ten had the buzzer. He wins. You got it. Yeah. Ephraim Waite. Yes. Ken. Thing in the doorstep. Thing in the doorstep is correct. Basil Elton. Chad. The white ship. White ship is correct. I no. hear it in Andrew's voice. At all. Uh, yes, Chris. Ca Cats of Ulthar. Cats of Ulthar is correct. There's uh, I beat him again yes, on Chad. it. Also showed up later in the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Also true. There's oh, one oh, last oh. story. Yes, Chris. The Other Gods. The Other Gods Yay! is correct. Those are the three. Emmy Pierce. Emmy Pierce. Pierce. Yes. Andrew. Uh, Dunwich Horror. Not what no. I have. Oh, Colorado Space. Yes. Yeah, well, you got to buzz in. <laughs> I did. Colorado Space, you are correct. Rule follower Ken Height gets that. Emmy Pierce, Color Out of Space. That is all the questions we have, so give it up for your panelists. <laughs> Uh, but we have another special little treat uh, for, oh, wait, actually, you know what? I'm going to turn to our lovely time, uh, scorekeeper. Jen, what is the final tally? Uh, yes. <laughs> like uh, Price Waterhouse Coopers has yes, handed me. Like uh, based solely on how much I like you. What? 
like your spectacles. Uh oh. Okay, Andrew Lehman, 100. Snazzy. <laughs> very place. fair, very fair. Chris Lackey, 98. Just oh. under. Just under. So close. That's pretty good, man. Ken yeah, Height. Don't feel bad. Infinity. Yeah. Simple elegance, she writes. And Chad Pfeiffer, uh, it's better not said what Chad Pfeiffer's spectacle score is. I'm very sorry, Chad. I only see through my tears. (laughs) And it's beautiful. (laughs) 